Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. As they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. That's an important word, father. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples, unlike chapters 8, 9, and 10, do you notice? Now his disciples are listening. And his disciples are listening. Verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple... And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves or pigeons. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise to the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Jesus is quoting from Isaiah there. But you have made it a robber's den. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. And the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So now Jesus has been to the synagogue, and the synagogue leaders want to destroy him. And now he's in the temple, and the temple leaders also want to destroy him. Wherever you go within Judaism, when Jesus is around, the leadership, the religious leadership, wants to, wants to destroy Jesus. Verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Would you pray with me, church? Lord, this is a, a lot of text to digest and to cover and to understand in the, the few minutes that we have remaining. But God, I, I pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, that we would see how... These pieces fit together and lead to the application, the conclusion, God, that, 
that there's nothing in the world that we have to put our faith in but God Himself. And we do that by trusting in Christ His Son. Lord, lead your church this morning to a deeper level of worship and understanding and appreciation for all that Christ is. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. So, this message I've titled, Fruitful Faith in Jesus, the Savior for All Nations. You see the story of a fig tree interrupted by what happens at the temple and then the conclusion of the meaning of the fig tree. What we call this is a Markin sandwich. He puts the beginning of the story and the end of the story around something else, which tells us that the story of the fig tree is about what happens at the temple. That's Mark's way. I call it a, a Greek highlighter. Right? He's saying, pay attention to what happens in the temple. That's the interpretation of what happens with the fig tree. So we've turned to the page to chapter 11. Jesus and the disciples have been on the way to Jerusalem for three chapters. And now they've finally arrived at their destination where he will offer himself as God's once for all lamb and sacrifice as a ransom for many. And what we discover is that the very people who are in the best position to anticipate God's salvation through God's Son, rather than doing that at the temple, they've turned the temple into a symbol of status rather than a place of grateful dependence upon God. How sad that we can turn things, good things that God gives us to point us to His Son, we can turn those into things that we worship and make about ourselves rather than about God. If we could imagine... The thoughts of the high priest and the Sanhedrin. This is Passover week, right? Mark's going to take a deep dive on the last seven days of Jesus' life up to and then through his resurrection. He's going to go deep into the Passion week or the Passover week of Jesus' life. And, and so Jesus is there at Passover or the, the anticipation of Passover. And I think if we could hear the high priest or if we could hear the Sanhedrin, the controlling crowd of the temple, it might sound something like this. Sure, Jesus, we would love to have your political victory, but we got this whole temple thing down. I mean, we know the drill, and don't you think God's pretty impressed with us? I mean, we process more than 250,000 lambs in Passover week. Yeah, all the pilgrims tax the resources of the city, and Passover is a bloodbath, but we have a great sacrificial system, don't you think? I mean, we've got it down to a science. And by the way, we turn a pretty good profit, too. I mean, if God himself were to send a lamb to take away the sins of the world, I don't suppose we would really want that anyway. What would happen to our priesthood? What would happen to our annual family reunion? What about all our traditions? You see, any system of self-reliance, even if it takes place at the Temple Mount... Or in a beautiful church building. Or in a gymnasium where we enjoy worshiping. Or with all of our preferences lined out exactly as we would like them. No system of self-reliance will bear the sort of fruit that Jesus seeks. That's the connection between the fruit tree and the welcoming of Jesus in verses 1 through 10. He's seeking fruit from our lives. And the only fruit that God wants from our lives is the fruit of lives that have been changed by Him, that are showing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and a harvest of souls from among all nations. So the question that all of these verses raise together is this, how can I have a faith that is fruitful? How can I have a faith that is fruitful? 
Not just with nice shiny leaves on the tree, but when someone were, were to inspect my life, there's actually fruit there. And what Jesus wants us to see is that to have a faith in God that is fruitful, we must recognize Jesus is God, and He's God's King who saves His people. Secondly, we must understand that Jesus condemns self-serving worship. When we come to worship and we make worship about ourselves rather than about the Savior, that's, that's not doing anybody any good. It's certainly not leading to fruitfulness in our lives. And finally, we must have faith in God. First, we must recognize Jesus is God and God's King who saves His people. Mark shows us in verses 1 through 10 that Jesus is both God and the Messiah King. And, and you've heard Mark chapter, 10, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, preached over and over on Palm Sunday. And so we're going to hustle through this. This is the triumphal entry of Jesus. He's been declared as king. He's walking into Jerusalem as king. In verse 1, Mark tells us that this is happening around the Mount of Olives, which is where Zechariah 14 promises that the Messiah is going to come in victory. What they don't understand is his victory is going to come through a cross. In verses 2 through 5, Jesus demonstrates his deity through his precise foreknowledge and his sovereignty over subsequent events. Do you notice what happens? Jesus tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen, and then it happens. How does that happen? He's God. In verse 3, Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. The word Lord is the Greek translation of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself with the Father. He's saying... Where I am, the Lord is. The Father and I are one. I am God. In verse 6, the disciples give Jesus a precise obedience. They do exactly what he told them to do. Guess who deserves that kind of obedience? A king does. In verse 7 and 8, Jesus fulfills Genesis 49 verse 11, which tells us that a son through the tribe of Judah is coming on a colt. In, in Zechariah 9, 9, we learn this. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In verse 8, the people put their garments on the ground to welcome Jesus, just like the conquering king Jehu. Way back in 2 Kings chapter 9, they are welcoming Jesus as a king who conquers. In verse 9, the people quote from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Believing that Jesus is the answer to their prayers for salvation. And guess what? Down through verse 9, they're right. Jesus is all these things. He's the long-awaited Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And that should give us confidence to follow Him as the King of our lives. He is God who came down for us. He is deity on a donkey. Before He comes on a war horse, He comes on a colt to enter a city where He establishes His forever kingdom, opening a way for all kinds of people, not just Jews, not just Americans, not just people who walk like you, talk like you, smell like you, eat like you, and like your favorite restaurant or football team, all kinds of people living in all kinds of places to know and to worship the one true God. That's why he came. He came to establish a worldwide everlasting kingdom and to use his church, his people, in the process. Are you all ready? I'm ready. But in verse 10, we see that those who welcome Jesus, even though they had all the evidence lined up, listen to what they speak of. They don't speak of the son of David, but they speak of their father, David. You say, what's the difference? Oh, well, there's a big difference. You remember blind Bartimaeus last week? Who was he crying out to when Jesus came through the town? Son of David. 
Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. God, we're looking for your son. We're looking for the one who will establish a kingdom that never ends, where physical death is eradicated through his blood. We're looking for a sacrifice, not just so that I would be delivered from Rome, but that I would be delivered from myself and my selfishness. And yet they are looking not for the son of David, but for their father David. You see, they're looking for the glory days. They wanted a salvation that was just a return to the glory days of Israel when David and Solomon ruled a united Jewish kingdom renowned for its wealth and its military might. But Jesus has something far bigger than that in mind. He doesn't want a postage stamp in the Middle East. He wants the whole world, he declares it's mine. As Jesus taught, the kingdom of God doesn't come when Jesus comes immediately and eradicates the enemies of Israel. Rather, it starts out small and barely perceptible. Mark's already told this told us this in chapter 4, verses 30 and 32. The kingdom of God is a spiritual reality before it is a physical reality. God's got to deal with our sin before you see the physical manifestations of the kingdom. But you see, Israel's pride in the temple blinded her to the need that she had for the saving and personal, the personal and saving presence of God. The temple should have pointed people to a sure hope in God's coming and forever son but instead, when Jesus enters the temple in verse 11, do you see that? He goes into the temple and looks around. Nobody notices. Nothing happens. The high priest of heaven is standing in the, holy, in the temple place and nobody cares. They miss their mom. You see, Israel is one of the nations. And her hope is the same hope that God gives to all nations. And his name is Jesus. It's not a temple. It's Jesus. Who is the temple? Her hope is not found in a temple made with human hands, but in the temple of God's Son. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David says to God, I'm going to build you a temple. And God says, you're not going to build me a temple. One day, I'm going to build you a temple, and it's going to come in a son. 2 Samuel chapter 7. The shouts of the crowds give way to Jesus looking around at everything. He's welcomed as a king in verses 9 and 10. But by chapter 11, Jesus stands essentially alone in the temple. And he's investigating what he sees. And we don't know all that he sees. But what he surely doesn't find is a hunger for the personal saving presence of God in the hustle and the bustle of the sacrificial system. So Jesus comes back the next day. After he overnights two miles away in Bethany and he comes to condemn self-serving worship that fails to point others to Christ and to his kingdom. Rather than have faith in the promised Son of God, Jesus has found faith in traditions of a temporary temple, faith in the good old days. The temple should have trained people to look for a day when the sacrifices would end and God's presence would extend to all nations through Christ the Son. But instead, it had become all about themselves. They had turned the temple into something that was just about them and their preferences and their wants and their desires and their likes. And specifically, it had become about personal gain and ethnic pride. Personal gain and ethnic pride. Going to the temple was a bit like going to the movies today. Does anybody even go to the movies anymore and buy a $15 pack of Reese cups? I mean... Going to the temple is robbery. I don't know, you know, when a, when a hurricane blows through and gas prices spike to $15 a gallon and the governor issues threats like about price gouging and all the rest, just go to the movie theater and you'll find price gouging. I mean, it is crazy. Don't bring your bottle of water in here. 
why? I just want to drink water. And water, last I checked, it should be free, right? I mean, yeah, you got to pay your water bill, but, you know, what's your water bill for the month? It's 20, 30, 50 bucks, whatever, and doesn't go, oh, you want a cup for water? That'll be $3. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Just wait for the Netflix version. So, so that's what's going on at the temple. Think about it. You've got to come to Jerusalem. You've got to come make a long hike up the mount to Jerusalem. And you've got to get there. And you've got to get there with a sacrifice that meets all the qualifications of the temple leadership. Which, by the way, they made sure that you were going to have to buy something when you got there. Yeah, that lamb's not good enough. Those pigeons aren't going to do it. Here's what Achan says. Pilgrims were requested to bring an acceptable sacrifice. They had to pass a rigorous inspection. Most chose were actually forced to buy an approved animal certified by the mafia of temple priests and backed up by the powerful and corrupt Sanhedrin. The markup was shameful and immoral. Some estimate that they charged 16 times the normal price for two pigeons, which is the sacrifice of a poor person. Money changers would then exchange foreign currency, which they had to, into Jewish currency, again, for an outrageous fee. So Jesus comes into the temple to drive out those who are buying and selling like he had driven out demons earlier in Mark's gospel. In verse 15, he overturns the money changers' tables and the seats of those selling doves. And in verse 16, he blocks the thoroughfare that had apparently become some sort of shortcut for those who wanted to get back and forth with sacrifices and money and make just as much money as they could. Rather than even respecting the temple mount, they're just cutting right through the middle of it. So Jesus confronts this desire to take worship and twist it into something that we gain from rather than we glorify His Son. But the second thing that Jesus condemns and confronts is ethnic pride. You see, all this buying and selling wasn't the worst part. All this buying and selling has not just turned the temple into a den of robbers Jesus is quoting from Jeremiah 8.11. But it also reflects just how deeply Israel has misunderstood God's desire to rescue all nations through His Son. They're buying and selling. Do you know where it's taking place? It's taking place in the court of the Gentiles. It's the one place that the temple has where Gentiles can come and worship. And in that very place at Passover week is where they're doing their buying and selling. It's not in the sanctuary. And they've got a nice wall up dividing the Gentiles from the sanctuary that says, if you go in here, you're going to die and it's going to be your fault. That's your pastor's paraphrase. You see, the temple's a den of robbers, not just because of the financial shenanigans, but also because God's house is supposed to be a place for people from all the nations. They aren't just robbing their own people. They are robbing God of the glory that He deserves from their lives by glorying in themselves rather than glorying in Christ the Son. So the one author summarizes it this way. Their economic drive and their false security in the temple as a sign of God's blessing crowded out the spaces for the nations to draw near. The great sadness of this scene isn't so much the rows of product and the price gouging but that all this left no room for the Gentiles and the outcasts to come to God. Did you know we've got, we serve a God who's in the business of rescuing the brokenhearted? We serve a God 
who is for the outcast. We serve a God who is for the overlooked. We serve a God for the one who doesn't know their father or their mother or how they even arrived here this morning and you came in desperate and hungry. God is in the business of giving you his son and helping you find your purpose within the plan and the mission of God. He is for those people. And if our church is not for those people, then we've turned worship into something that's about us rather than about the mission of God in the world. The temple should have prefigured. It should have put on display the hope of God's restored creation. That's what the church should be. A little taste of heaven on earth. It's why I want to build a church that looks like the Roanoke Valley in terms of our racial and ethnic makeup. Why? Because the Roanoke Valley needs to see that the gospel does something that the world cannot do. That it puts together red and yellow and black and white and men and women and boys and girls for a mission that's greater than themselves. We should be the place... We should be the place that the world can look and say the impossible has happened through the blood of Jesus. But at the temple, that's not what had happened. They should have been able to say, many people shall come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, Isaiah 2, 2 and 3. They should have been able to say, this is a house of prayer for all peoples, Isaiah 56, 7. But it was really just a house of prayer to themselves and glorying in their identity as God's people. The temple... Like a fig tree with no fruit and a bunch of leaves was all show and no substance. It looked the part, church. It looked really good on the outside. Man, their worship ministry was great. Great music. Precision in the sacrificial system. Everything looked good on the outside, but it lacked fruit. At a time when other trees were barren. Do you see that in verse 13? It was not the season for figs. The temple's like, look at us. We got leaves. We're putting on a good show over here. But it offered nothing to those who were truly hungry for God. I want to be a church that offers something to those who are hungry for God. Poor Jews were coming to make a sacrifice and they were only extorted. Gentiles were searching for hope. Maybe this God is real and they were only excluded. And the only thing worse in Jesus' eyes than an obviously dead religion is a religion that puts on a really good show but offers nothing to those who are hungry for God. That sort of religion is not cleansed by Jesus. We often call this the temple cleansing. This is not the temple cleansing. It's the temple condemnation. Spurgeon once said, the great majority of persons who have any sort of religion at all, they bear leaves, but they don't produce any fruit. Do you want God to produce a harvest of righteousness in your life? Do you want God to use you to reach people, men and women and boys and girls in your workplace for the glory of Christ our King? It can happen when we put our faith in God. Perhaps that is why the disciples are finally listening, by the way, when Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. You see, there's no more hope for the tree and there's no more hope for life to come through the dead, self-serving ritualism of the temple. The time for the temple is short. By 70 AD, it's going to lie in ruins. But much sooner than that, in fact, it's just going to be on Good Friday. 
Its curtain will be ripped in two from top to bottom through the flesh of the living Lord Jesus Christ who bears the nails in His wrists and in His feet so that the gateway to heaven would be opened up to red and yellow, black and white, all tribes, all peoples, all over the world because the high priest of heaven died to redeem through His own blood, not the blood of lambs and goats which don't have the power to take away Sin. No longer will Israel be able to say, trust in the temple. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, Jeremiah 7, 4. They must trust in the Son of God. You see, church, Jesus is not looking just for the appearance of fruit. He doesn't want you to look the part and put on Jesus' makeup every morning. He actually wants you to have a harvest of righteousness flowing out of your life and, be a, and making an impact for the kingdom of God in the here and now. That's the only sort of fruit that satisfies, and that kind of fruit can only come through faith in God. You say, what in the world does verse 22 have to do with verses 1 to 21? It sounds like Jesus changed topics. He was talking about the temple, and He came to Jerusalem as King. And then in verse 22, He says, have faith in God. I don't understand the connection. Here's the connection. God will knock down whatever He's got to knock down in your life that you're believing in that isn't Jesus, so that you can only have faith in Jesus. And the disciples are like blown away. I thought you were going to come, and you were just going to... Hang out and you were going to sort of bless the temple sacrificial system. And Jesus says, I'm going to demolish it in my own body. And on the th third day, I'm going to raise it up. And you're going to be the temple of my presence to the ends of the earth. Well, what do we do about that, Jesus? You just blew my mind. Have faith in God. As Aiken writes, God once had a temple, physical temple located in Jerusalem. Now he has a perfect temple located in heaven. His name is Jesus. He now has a spiritual temple, which is His church, a personal temple scattered all around the world as a witness that He is indeed a Savior for all nations. You say, Pastor, I'm tired of you talking about all the nations. Why do you talk about all the nations? Because the gospel keeps talking about all the nations. What did Jesus say? You're robbing me of my glory because it's supposed to be a house of prayer for who? All the nations. I didn't just make this up. It's right here in the Bible. Jesus, not the temple or our job or our house or our income or our insurance policies or our freedoms or our right or our nationality, our country of origin, our kids, our spouse, our Sunday school class, our pastor, our order of service, our favorite song or worship style or location or anything else. None of that is the object of our faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. The satisfaction that our souls seek is only found in Christ. That is why Jesus graciously topples counterfeit worship. It is why He warns us about trusting in ourselves and calling it worship. It's why He lays an axe to the root of the idea that He's come to bring back the good old days. Jesus did not come back to bring back the good old days. He is on mission to a future that is glorious and unending. And He wants your eyes fixed on that, not on, well, we didn't used to do it that way. That's not... That's not who Jesus is the Lord of. He's the Lord of a mission that is ongoing until He comes back. Y'all right. are here, right? Yeah. You say, well, that's, that sounds judgmental. That's awfully harsh. It's an act of grace, church. 
There's nothing better to trust in than the living Lord Jesus Christ who is on a mission that's greater than ourselves. There's, there's nothing more glorious and more wondrous and more delightful than genuinely finding your place in that mission. There's nothing like it in the world. And when Jesus strips us of everything but Him, we will either, like the religious leaders, look at verse 18, try to destroy Him and His work, or we will obey Jesus' command in verse 22, and we will have faith in God. We will keep on having faith in God. It's an ongoing command from Jesus. It's not have faith tomorrow, but on Tuesday, don't worry about it, just check out. Keep on having faith in God. And having faith in God means that we will desire what God desires. That His Son's glory would be made known in all the earth among all peoples. One of the greatest evidences that we have faith in Christ is that we are so satisfied by His goodness that we have to tell other people. Let me say that again. One of the greatest evidences that we have faith in Christ is that we are so satisfied by the goodness of Him that we are compelled to tell others about what we found. When you find a steakhouse that cooks a good steak, what do you do? You tell people, I found the greatest steak in the Roanoke Valley. And if you know where the greatest steak in the Roanoke Valley is, I want to know. So far, the best one I've found is at Chip Basham's house, by the way. <laughs> Jesus says in John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I'm telling you, church, there's no food like doing the will of the one who is sending us and accomplishing his work. When we believe in God, we become a part of His mission. And being a part of His mission means, by the way, look at verse 23. It, it flows so naturally. Have faith in God. And then Jesus talks about moving mountains. Why does He talk about moving mountains? Because if you're on mission with God, you're going to encounter a bunch of mountains. There's no mountain, however, standing in the way of God's will, which God will not move for those who are following Christ in faith. What a promise. There is no mountain standing in the way of God's will which God will not move for those who are following Christ in faith. If you are leading a mountain-free life, by the way, you probably aren't living a life on mission with God. Because the mission of God and the mission of the world are diametrically opposed to one another. The world has no interest in Jesus getting all the glory from your life. So if you're living, if you came to church and said, I'm looking for a mountain-free life, you came to the wrong place. You come to church and get plugged into God's mission, you're going to get more mountains than you've ever had in your life, but you finally get access to the God who can move them. If you are living on mission, that's God, God can move your mountains. If you're living on mission with Him, you're going to encounter all sorts of them with your teenager, in your family, in your marriage, your workplace, your neighborhood, a new mission field. In trying to become a church that looks more and more like heaven. In becoming a church on earth that looks more and more like Jesus would have us to look. In giving ourselves away to our spouse as Christ gave himself to us. In all of these things. And especially in seeking souls that are lost. We will encounter mountains. And what we do when we encounter these mountains is we don't just walk around them. We don't ignore them. What do we do? We pray. This is why Jesus says, pray. These are the things about which we, we must pray in faith, not doubting that God will do whatever is necessary to accomplish His plan, rather than doing the opposite, putting faith in ourselves. We've been so blessed to encounter and receive and know Christ that we want to know 
God and we want to see God remove any obstacle in our lives that would prevent us from knowing Him more fully. And we want God to remove any obstacle which would prevent others from knowing the blessing of knowing Christ. Andrew Murray said it this way. The power of the church to truly bless rests on intercession. Asking and receiving heavenly gifts to carry to men. Church, prayer is a posture of complete dependence upon God. It's saying... That if we're going to be the church and the family and the couple that pleases God and is a part of reaching nations for the glory of Christ, God's going to have to do it. Prayer is the place that we recognize that the only way for someone to know the joy of knowing Jesus is for God to perform mountain-moving miracles in the hearts of men. You say, mountain-moving miracles in the hearts of men, I, my heart's just fine, is it? Because do you see what Jesus does? First he says, Has, have faith in God. And then he gives two words about what it looks like to have faith in God. The first is prayer. If you really have faith in God, then you're going to be praying about the mountains that you're encountering in pursuing his mission. And then he adds this one, forgiveness. You know why so many Christians aren't engaged in the mission of God in the world today? They're harboring bitterness over something that happened a day ago, a month ago, a year ago, ten years ago, three decades ago. They still haven't gotten over it. You talk to them for five minutes and all that comes out of their mouth and heart is about how they were hurt some time ago. They've never really given forgiveness. And as long, church, as we are a church that is wrapped up in what happened to us. We are not focusing our eyes on the God who gave his life for us. Sometimes the mountain that must be moved first is the mountain of being personally offended. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't let the offense of the cross stand in the way of his forgiving you? And if Jesus didn't let the offenses of the people mocking him and spitting on him and crucifying him stand in the way of what he was going to do for us, we must not let lesser offenses stand in the way of our forgiveness or the forgiveness of others. Jesus speaks of forgiveness because he's sending us to people that we don't like. The people who kneel on Sunday when you would prefer them to stand, would you rather talk to them about that or about the living Lord Jesus Christ who changes their perspective? The people who walk into a voting booth and they've got a D next to their name but you've got an R next to yours, would you rather tell them that their politics are wrong or tell them about a king who is over all the politics and one day it's not going to matter one whit? Who are you really living for? Do the people of the world that you disagree with based on what they read on your social media account and what you're listening to on the radio and what you're saying, would they know even though you have a deep political, philosophical, whatever disagreement with them, would they know that you love them? But you know, we'd rather get distracted. We'd rather buy into Satan's lie. We'd rather fret about stuff that's going to burn up and not matter when Jesus comes back. And Jesus says, stop fretting, start forgiving, and that takes faith in God. When we forgive one another, 
And when we offer our enemies forgiveness that they're not even asking for, just like Christ did for us, that is when we have an open door to pray that the God of heaven would release us and use us in his mission. So how are we going to respond this morning? Because I don't know what's going on in your life, but this sermon cut me to the core. We got one shot, we got one life. Do you really want God to use it? I want to ask you to search yourselves and identify things you're trusting in that are less than the Son of God and repent and say, God, I want to trust in Christ and in Christ alone. I want to be a person of great prayer. I want to encounter mountains that are immovable and trust that you will move them in Jesus' name. In my family, in my son or my daughter, person who's strayed from the Lord, I want to commit to praying that you would move mountains. And finally, I'm tired of living in the land of unforgiveness. I'm tired of listening to the lie of the world that I've got to be mad or angry or bitter at somebody. I've got to have an enemy somewhere. And I want to be opened up to the fact that Christ died for me while I was his enemy. And so I'm willing to lay my life down that they might know Christ as well. And if you're not there in any way this morning, church, today's the day to get started. Because God is doing the work at North Roanoke Baptist Church. We are not going to be a den of robbers robbing Christ of the glory He is due. We are going to be a house of prayer and hope and blessing for all the nations. And He's going to do it for His glory. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, none of this is possible unless your Holy Spirit is with us. None of this is possible unless we allow you to break us down and then build us right back up in the hope of the glorious gospel that you've given to us. So, Father, I ask for the glory of your Son that your Holy Spirit would do your work right now, that we would sing wholeheartedly to you. God, that as we sing, we would sing as a, as a cry of our hearts that we want to have deeper faith in God. We want to have no faith in ourselves. And we want to see you get the glory from our lives. And we want to see you do an amazing work in the hearts of those that don't yet know you. And God, if there's anybody here who's struggling this morning with a mountain that they failed to pray about or a bitterness or anger that they failed to deal with and they, they feel closed off to your Holy Spirit, God, today would be the day that they come and, and get that right with you and know the sweetness of fellowship that can only come through a right relationship with the God of the universe. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know where you are or what you need to do, but as we stand and sing, we invite you to come and do business with Christ the King. Yeah,